Time Conversations. I'm your host, Justin Farmer, inviting you to be in conversations with us with ideas and people who are making a difference. Today, our guest, Brian Anderson, thank you so much for coming down to the studio and joining us. Glad to be with you, Justin. Thanks for having me. I I have the pleasure of knowing you uh, through my very first stint of politics. uh, meeting you in Milford and seeing you be a leader and be someone who brings people together. Um, I, I guess where I want to start is how did you get involved in politics? Because I I think this right now is just such a turbulent time and so many people you know, wonder if it's a space for them and and you're a person who I see as a connector who just brings everybody together. I don't think I can honestly say I don't think I know one person who doesn't like Brian Anderson. You know, I feel the same way about you. <laughs> um, your service as a legislative council member in Hamden has been stellar. And uh, to make the connection, uh, my father was the first um black person appointed Mm. to the legislative body that preceded the legislative council. So he received that appointment in 1964, nearly 60 years ago. Wow. Um, And at that time it was called the representative town meeting and it lasted for an additional year and replaced by the legislative council. And by the way, just as an aside, those of you who are Hamdenites, John Carasone, who became mayor, served on that first legislative council, and he's still going at it all these years later. Um, So my dad really set the mark. And then to your point about trying to make a difference in the political field when it is so difficult, Mm. because after all, many of us want to be in the room to expand the space in that room to bring others along and make it a point to make it work for so many, for, for as many as we possibly can. And after 
my dad served in elective office for a couple of terms. That was enough for him. <laughs> and I actually thought that he and my mother would never speak again after a while because she caught the bug, became active politically, ran for the Legislative Council uh, herself, and was thought of as a town clerk candidate back in the 70s. And hey. So that's, that's where it comes from. And um, uh, I, I think that what's difficult about where we find ourselves is you and I had so many conversations back in 2016 when, when <laughs> Bernie... <laughs> Bernie was uh, someone who we, so many of us invested in to try to make, uh, try to make him the Democratic nominee for president that year. And that seems like light years away <laughs> from where we are now. It's just incredible. So in any event, um, connecting the dots, my father represented the seat that you now hold. Wow. And he was the first. <laughs> it is a small, small world. Yeah. I, uh, so you've been elected in multiple places. How did that happen? Why did that happen? <laughs> well, uh, having grown up in, in the town, I, I left Hamden to... Um, on a couple of occasions, first of all, I was recruited to work in the Virgin Islands. Hey. Um, and by, by an organization, nonprofit that was looking at the legislative process and was looking for somebody on the ground to make recommendations on improving the process legislatively, procedurally, as well as uh, structurally. And I had about a year in which to write a report and to implement many of those features. Um, this is why this guy's so calm, cool, and collected. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the truth is it was report and process that probably could have been accomplished in three months. <laughs> and, uh, I also ran a successful congressional campaign um, at the age of 24, and I went to D.C. But I found that uh, Washington was filled with grifters and... Said the swamp? No, it's not. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, you know, a lot of people that weren't real. So that had me coming back home. And rather than come home to, to Hamden, I decided to move into downtown New Haven. I went to work for the city in economic development and housing. And uh, I stayed with within New Haven for about 20 years or so and, and then made my move to Milford. Um, and uh, Hamden has a lot, certainly more now than when I was growing up there's a real fabric to the community that, that I relish and applaud. 
but the one thing that it doesn't have is a shoreline. <laughs> hey, we're a coastal community. Uh huh. <laughs> Lake Whitney counts. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Or, or I thought you were going to maybe uh, uh, the um, the pond up uh-huh. in <laughs> up in uh, Brooksville or uh, the river in Sleeping Giant. So you know that's how I ended up moving around. So I. I did my stint in the VI, lived in Washington for a time, but I've been in the greater New Haven area for for most of my adult life. I, I uh, as a former young person, no, <laughs> <laughs> as some, let's put it this way, as someone who now mentors other others, right? <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I think that age, right? Mm, that yeah. the early twenties is just such a, a pivotal time. Yeah. And so, you know, you're an educator. Yeah. What, how are you talking to young people about the political process? How are you engaging with people? What are you seeing? Cause I, I think oftentimes we talk about young people as if, they're not in the room mm-hmm. um and i've only been in the room since i've been in the room so mm-hmm. i don't know a time of young people not being in the room because mm-hmm. usually people are like yeah elected officials and young people and i'm like mm-hmm. yeah people are like justin you're both i'm like oh yeah <laughs> i always uh think about you know being maybe nine, 10 years old mm. and wanting to step out and make my contribution early on. And I'm always cognizant of the fact that I did not want to be held back, mm. wanted to make a difference. Whoever would provide that opportunity or wherever it was. And so I'm mindful that there are young people today that who wish to be heard mm. and um, be provided guidance so that they're able to make their input in the process. So I was, uh, I decided when I registered to vote at 18, I was going to run for office right away. Oh, nobody drafted me. <laughs> it it wasn't a consensus decision. I just forged ahead. Um, and having grown up in the New Hall area where it took parents in the neighborhood to make decisions about closing the local elementary school, um, making the sacrifice to place their children on buses to other schools throughout Hamden. A lot of those early meetings took place at Christian Tabernacle Baptist Church. Um, I saw online yesterday Roger Van paying tribute to his dad, long departed on his birthday yesterday. And I think of Roger's father and mother as linchpins in the neighborhood and um many of your listeners know coach bob Salisbury from cross high school and 
his sister was a leader in our community and so many others. And so as someone who had an interest in community engagement, I was in the room and so many other young people who wanted to be in the room were permitted to be in the room. And then it was necessary to fill in the political structure. So getting that seat on town committee Mm -hmm. at 18, um, being able to run for office, making a way for others to come. uh, That was all part of my drive. And then as an educator, um, try to provide information to people about how best to be heard. My last job was as the in-school suspension officer at a middle school in Milford. Mm. And when people hear that title, they kind of cringe, right? (laughs) I was like, man, am I in trouble? (laughs) Yeah. But the really cool thing is we were able to implement restorative practice, Mm. the restorative practice model. And... Kids used to want to be in the room with me as opposed to being wherever they weren't heard. Mm -hmm. And I had a chance to interact every day with um, students during the lunch waves and what have you. So went back for career day in May and um, a lot of it, it validated my approach because a lot of the a lot of the kids that that who I valued who ended up being with the in the room with me came back to see me and spend time with me that day so that's that's what it's about is to continue to have dialogue kids have to know that you care Mm -hmm. that's first and that you're listening and not someone who's so quick with advice that you're not hearing what they're saying. Y'all are listening to Just In Time Conversations, WNHHFM 103.5, here with Brian Anderson, um, talking about listening, uh, listening to the kids. Uh, you know, I, as I become older, it's weird to see so many of my friends become educators and like know them in a personal way and go, Oh, hold on. You're 28. Oh, you're 25. Yeah. Oh, you're 21. Yeah. Hold yeah. On. You're a teacher. Yeah. What? I mean, and I'm sure you give this wisdom to people all the time, but what wisdom would you give to educators getting into the field now about connecting with kids? It's really challenging. Um, One of the projects that um, I had worked to implement was an enrichment program for Hill House High School students during during the summer. Essentially, um, what I did was to carve out a program that was called My Own Heritage. Hey. And so we we viewed films together, 
had mayor the mayor come in new haven mayor uh harp at that time come in to speak um we uh, we found out our dna okay through 23 and me uh we took walks through cemeteries and made connections there went to the new haven museum we looked at the original documents from the amistad trial uh new haven is a laboratory as you as you appreciate there is so much here that can be tapped into to try to make a difference and so um it's not just in the classroom where it happens it's through field experience and in my case i was always influenced by <clears throat> teachers in my life so whereas i i did not have any teachers within my nuclear family mrs ashford lived across the street from me who was the first uh woman of color hired by new haven and she worked at wexler school uh and she was one of eight from a family in north carolina and they all graduated teachers college back in the day um and then Carl DeCruz, who was a special ed teacher and worked with Hank Parker. And um, he, Carl became a principal of um, East Rock and so many other schools in New Haven. They had a big impact on me. And I closely watched their craft. And when I had a chance to apply for um i wrote about them that was part of my application and so uh if you know educators if you if you've got friends that are going into education hint hint <laughs> if i know i i guess I, I there's a person i can point them towards uh is what you're saying <laughs> yeah yeah i i did it the hard way too uh i was already 46 oh and i was looking for a program that would provide some funding for classes because otherwise to have been a student teacher i would have had to take in a vow of poverty never been never would have worked in my case um i'm not from a wealthy background i did not have a big savings account to live off of i would have had to you couldn't work really because you had to do field work as well as teach during the day so i was very very fortunate to find an avenue through the New York City Teachers Fellowship Program, whereby if you were selected for the program, they paid for college education. So my master's um, I obtained from Fordham University, and um, I was able to be placed 
at a Bronx school, elementary school, a K to five. And I, um, I stayed at that same school uh, during my entire career until I came back to work in Milford. That, that is so interesting. So you went from a career doing housing mm-hmm. to doing teaching. Yeah. And like what, what were the parallels? What were the, the differences between the two? It was definitely a lifeline. And I think there had been a city controller, you know, having been uh, New Haven Alder with both uh, John Daniels and John Stefano. And I worked for Ben Delito when he was mayor. I saw that there was a city controller who left his job and he became a teacher. And, and that also I took note of. He ended up going back to school and, and obtaining a teaching job in Woodbridge. And I thought, mm. all right, so there are avenues that are available. Um, I don't see a connection. I, I think, I think it's a very different field. Um, except that you're continuing to work with families. Um, and in my case, being in New York city, um, there were a lot of families in transition. I had kids whose families were in shelters. And I would hear their stories that the shelters were actually worse than what they had left. You can only imagine some what some of the circumstances were. I we're seeing it play it out on the streets in New York now. <laughs> in many respects. You know, New York is just uh in some ways incapable of handling uh, desperate situations, unfortunately. You're talking about the migrant crisis. I am. I am. There should not be anyone sleeping on the street. Thanks. I remember being in Milford with you and, and having a conversation about different types of dwellings and the the opportunity and, and this is something that I see across the region, right? You have um eight thirty G for those who aren't familiar. Eight thirty G is a uh uh a bill that passed that encourages municipalities to have more affordable housing and allows for clever tools to push developers to uh, to to make a goal to have affordable housing in their housing stock and something that we see right there are communities that have single family homes and then you have you know condos and complexes where you have 20 30 50 people yeah but there's not too many two family three family right dwellings and and i remember you pointing out the different dwellings downtown milford and kind of the work that was being done. Wow. Good memory. <laughs> so 
I'm hopeful from the standpoint because the the problem with 8-30G is oftentimes it's developer-driven and it should be a community that makes a decision about holding a charrette for potential developers, saying this is the land, Mm. let's work in partnership. Unfortunately my experience has been, has been that it's developer driven and oftentimes the developer will say put up 30 units but they'll only set aside 10 for 8-30g and so municipalities are unable to achieve their goals because you're they're continuing to put up market rate the bulk of which is market rate um, and not the 8-30G. But I'm hopeful because the state last year requires every community to either buy into the accessory dwelling unit Mm. law that the state has established or come up with their own regulations. And I'm proud of my community because they are, they have adopted um, regulations in zoning that will permit an accessory unit within single family homes. Mm. Um, the occupant could be non blood related and pay rent. Oh. And it's just going to open up the market to folks that really want to remain within a community. And we were talking about teachers and oftentimes it's teachers and, and clerical um, employees and, and others that are having the hardest time and young people that are having the hardest time and they're, they're, you know, they're with the, they're with their families for better, or for worse, you know, in some cases they don't particularly get along with their families, but, and wish to move on. Right. I'm very hopeful that we'll see some positive things with ADUs. And I myself, I have a, a single fam. Um, I live in a raised ranch. I've got the family room downstairs. Mm. So it would be a natural for me um, to uh, put in a shower stall. I have a half bath downstairs. And the regulations allow a kitchenette to be put in so sink stove maybe microwave and and make that happen so that's a good thing we'll see where that goes so i i am impressed that you're still following the housing world (laughs) (laughs) the uh so adu's accessory uh adu's again are Accessory dwelling units. Accessory dwelling units. Um, kind of like in-law suites, but detached. Exactly. Um, lots of uh, people similar with like tiny houses and stuff, but not yep. exactly the same. Yep. Um, you know, housing in the region, especially uh, places like uh, like Hamden, New Haven, 830G works weird for them because we hit that 20% of our housing stock being affordable. Right. 
but you need way more than that. Mm-hmm. And so seeing neighboring communities like Milford who are on the periphery where you're a city, but you're not a city, but mm. you're somewhere in between coming up to that. Uh, how do you see that changing the schools, right? Because I think one of the things that people always worry about is buying into a good school district, right? Mm-hmm. And there's always the argument that, you know, some will make the argument that poorer people will bring down the quality of life or the housing stock or the, the temperament of the neighborhood. But, you know, what what are you hopeful in, in some of these housing opportunities to do in terms of connecting with education, in terms of providing families with opportunities to these communities? I think we need to keep in mind the fact that um, our school population, because our birth rates are on the decline. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the impact on the school population is relatively negligible. And if anything, some of the privates, unless unless the privates um, have multi-dimensional programs, some of the privates need to be concerned about their continued viability. <laughs> right? No. I, you know, I, uh, I, it's interesting because you do have a lot of community members from New York moving over post absolutely pandemic, uh, post 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 pandemic, uh, they're paying less than what they left. Um, they're paying less for housing stock and they're paying less in taxes than quite often than what they left. And so, yes, there's still a big wave that's taking place from the five boroughs in Westchester County, especially we're, we're seeing that push, um, that really began with COVID and has continued unabated. You know, the word is, is out. And so there's a lot of movement that's still taking place. Now what butts up against that is the lack of inventory. So I was just looking at uh, the MLS, the multiple listing services yesterday, and there are only 30 units of housing that were on the market in my community oh, wow. yesterday. Yeah, so that's that's nothing. That's, that's like having nothing available. 30? Yeah, that was it. Whereas... You know, one time, if pre-COVID, it would have been maybe 300 units. So that's the reality that we're dealing with. What, what is something that people get wrong about Milford? It's a huge issue. Um, you know, when I first... I've been in Milford 25 years and I know the history and I'm certainly aware of how insular it was. There were a lot of people that had moved in from Bridgeport primarily. Um, 
it's really interesting because growing up in Hamden, living in Hamden as, as we do, we have a New Haven orientation, <laughs> right? Folks in Milford or Stratford have more of a Bridgeport orientation as opposed to New Haven. It's really interesting because primarily um, folks that had worked in the factories and living lived in Bridgeport moved to Stratford and Milford. Oh. So that's where where it comes from and Milford was much more of an insular community um it has changed and it is changing so um there's been a significant increase in um latina population asian population there are a lot of uh um Folks from India, Pakistan, those parts of the globe who reside in Milford and increasingly uh, African-American families. So I think Milford got a bad rap because, you know, years ago there were organizations that were looking to keep the town much more insular. (laughs) I had just moved in when i noticed a flyer on the green from uh, a group that was called the white wolves <laughs> i was thinking the white citizens council i wasn't gonna yeah. say yeah <laughs> yeah yeah exactly exactly so you know the powers that be they put that down immediately and um uh, what we've done in recent years is to promote Juneteenth. Hey. I'm one of the organizers along with Nigel Phelps and Carl Moore and, and Lillian and Jennifer Holmes. Uh, Bethel. Bethel is part of it. Uh, Milford Arts Council. So we will celebrate our fifth year this coming June. Wow. Uh, we also began a book club that was open to the entire community that that had as its focal point the the library so we um we had a community read-in of anti-racist baby and a number of other books um the color of law is one of my favorites and the color of law really touches on new haven and the greater new haven area back in the day during redevelopment um, and that's worth the read. Um, so uh, I'm also thinking parenthetically, being a, a youngster and having the, I have to add this, having the phone ring late at night, say nine, ten o'clock at night, and um, there'd be a voice on the other end saying, um, we just sold Mrs. So-and-so's house to a nice Negro family. <laughs> and if you'd be interested in selling your house, you know, be happy to give you a quote. That kind of thing. I was eight getting that phone call. Not my not my parents. I was eight years old and, and having to listen to that. And 
And so, you know, that's before fair housing was adopted. And, um, so it happened in Hamden and it happened in surrounding towns, you know, West Haven, East Haven, you know, you name it. East Haven's a very different community than when I was young. I'm thinking of my professor who says capital flight, whereas I'm just like, no, it feels white flight. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, that's cute, but. Yeah, exactly. Yep. I, so, you know, we, we've talked about housing. We've talked about schools. We talked about kids. I, the, the other aspect that I know you of, which I, I think you're the only justice of the peace to have like social media and just, oh my God. <laughs> right. But incredible. W- what is the justice of the peace? What do you do? How, you know, what, what is this position? Cause I, I see you as the person, as the figure of what a justice of the peace does but I don't necessarily see that in other communities. So, um, my mom was a JP when we lived on Newhall street. And I remember, uh, my younger sister and I being there to throw rice when a couple got married, you know, folks would see a JP sign on the house and they would stop. And I remember, particularly, I remember this one couple that were driving by in a um, tractor-trailer truck. And they left it running to come in to get married. It was pretty wild. Um, So in, my mother's name is Justine. In her tradition, um, I've been able to be an active justice of the peace to marry couples who wish to be wed and to also attest to somebody's signature and identity in legal papers. So I also became a notary recently so that um, I could actually notarize papers from going forward. Um, So as part of that, it's a service that I offer within the state of Connecticut. I also became a marriage minister last year. So I can perform weddings anywhere within the U S and, um, I've got a website, receive a lot of, uh, a lot of my couples through Google. Um, and uh, I just enjoy doing what I do. So, for example, last week on Milford Beach in Woodmont, um, I married a DJ to his, the love of his life. And um, I thought there was somebody in his party that looked awfully familiar, and I did a double take. And those of you who are fans of the Munsters... <laughs> Eddie Munster, Butch Patrick was at that party. So, um, it's been, uh, it's been a love. Um, I enjoy providing an opportunity for vow renewals. 
mm-hmm. and I just was able to do that at uh, one of the local lodges for some, for a couple married 53 years now. Wow. It's just, it's a love. It's a love of mine. And so um, I will put up folks, I will put up their information and their photographs on Instagram and, and uh, Facebook and elsewhere. And uh, I enjoy it. No, I, I I enjoy and appreciate you bringing community together, bringing people together, uh, embodying what community should look like or could be. Um, you know, as we near our time, you know, what's, you know, Brian Anderson's treasure shows of wisdom, what's a kernel that you could give to, to people listening about, you know, what makes you hopeful, right? Because I, I think we often talk about what brings us down and something that I, I I think you have a unique gift with is telling people things that they can be hopeful for. So what what's something that keeps you hopeful? You make me hopeful. <laughs> I can't wait to see how your career develops and I will be right there cheering. But in terms of community, um, I'm very hopeful about our having the vision to make improvements, to keep pushing forward. I have noticed um, what you've done, Justin, and, and others in my former home in the new hall area you know to bring to bear um a park within the olin powder farm and to do something with the former middle school site um i'm hopeful about all of that and my door is always open by the way so if get called all the time and if folks want to ever want to chat about anything that they have a vision about and they need to find a way to get something implemented my door is always open i would relish that hey i uh how can people connect with you how can people find you uh facebook is uh brian anderson uh so it's facebook.com slash brian anderson um, I also have, uh, a website that's, uh, brianandersonjp.com, um, and on Facebook and Instagram, brianandersonjp. So any which way to reach out. And if you, you can Google me and find my information on Google too. Well, um, this is my favorite question to always ask people. This is the question that all, everyone always struggles with. I don't know why. What is a favorite song of yours or a song that... You just played it. <laughs> Seriously. I am such... 
last weekend I was at the Newport Jazz Festival. The weekend before I was at the Litchfield Jazz Festival. I am such a jazz aficionado. I love Bill Withers. And Lovely Day. So many other songs. I mean, that's that's one of my favorite. Well, um, thank you so much for connecting with us. I, I'm glad that I, I, I have good taste. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you hit it. <laughs> um, until next time, let us continue to plant the seeds hey, of change so we can grow together. All right. See you at the airport. Traveling man, moving through places, space and time. Got a lot of things I got to do. God 